You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. How do we communicate to the wider public both the extent of the problem and the urgency to deal with it? And on our panel today, we have numerous people who are experts in this field, and um, uh, I'll introduce them to you first. Uh, and then Margaret and Rebecca will uh, speak to you for five minutes each, and then we'll have a discussion. So, Margaret Klein Salomon is a psychologist and the founder of exec- and executive director of the Climate Mobilisation, a group working to initiate a World War II scale mobilisation that rapidly transforms our economy to protect humanity and the living world. In this role, she has helped catalyze a burgeoning worldwide climate emergency movement. Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's foremost social researchers. She currently heads Vox Populi Research and uh, before this was a director at Ipsos and Essential Media. Rebecca writes broadcasts for a range of media outlets, including The Guardian and the ABC. Her next book will be published this year. It's entitled, How Can We Talk About Climate Change So People Listen? And joining us also on the panel is Richie Merzian. He is the Climate and Energy Director at the Australia Institute, an independent think tank that conducts research on a broad range of economic, social, transparency and environmental issues in order to inform public debate and bring greater accountability to the democratic process. Richie has also worked at the Australian Department of Climate Change and the Department of Foreign Affairs for almost a decade. Now, the reason why this is, of course, so important, this communication with the public, uh, is because if the public aren't mobilised, then the politicians won't listen. So let's hear first from Margaret Klein-Salomon. Hello? That one? Okay. All right. Um, My organization, the Climate Mobilization, uh, was founded with two core psychological concepts. Uh, Climate truth, right? Telling the truth about the scale of the emergency and the scale of the solution necessary to protect humanity and the living world and the concept of emergency mode. We heard earlier today from David Spratt about how a country can enter emergency mode. I'm gonna talk a little bit about how individuals can enter emergency mode. Um, But it's been a thrilling experience to be here and hear the speakers because these concepts have been thoroughly taken up right? Like, nobody here is giving that, you know, old-style bullshit that we've become really used to in the climate movement. People are telling the truth, they're talking about the right scale and speed and urgency, and it is such a breath of fresh air. Um, So, one of the applications of these concepts that my organization has done is... um, after Durban declared a climate emergency here in Australia, the first 
uh, in the world. Uh, my organization took this campaign to the United States, where um, the you know Hoboken, New Jersey, Montgomery County, Maryland, and then uh, Berkeley, California, and a bunch of other cities in the Bay Area. Um, my you know grassroots organizers made that happen, and then we um, shared this idea, this uh, tactic with Extinction Rebellion, and from there, London, uh, Bristol, London, the United Kingdom, and then the Green parties uh, in the UK and globally took it on, and now, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Um, so that, the, the climate emergency declarations are a, they, yeah, it's an application of that paradigm, those principles about telling the truth and about, again, the crisis and the solution and uh, entering emergency mode. So a government enters emergency mode through deploying its resources and, you know, making it its top national priority and so forth. We saw a great historical example during World War II. But individuals can also enter emergency mode and it looks like rethinking your life and reorienting your life around solving this emergency. It looks like taking personal responsibility for doing everything you can to stop this apocalypse from unfolding fully. So six years ago, I left the absolutely wonderful career of being a clinical psychologist because I, uh, you know, the alarm was flashing in my face and I, I just couldn't ignore it. I, I had to try, you know, to push myself as far as I could go. And so uh, some of the characteristics of being in emergency mode as an individual are uh, focus, right, if you can, leave your job and work on the movement. If you can't do that, cut your hours back drastically. Like, like this, is, this is it, right? This is the time. And, I, and that level of dedication, how, how much of your wealth can you give away to this cause, right? To this emergency movement? Those, those are the questions. That's the scale that we need to be thinking about. Um, I... <laughs> My most recent project is I wrote a self-help guide to uh, processing the feelings that come up with the climate emergency and turning pain into action. It's available uh, out in the bookstore. Um, it's called Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. And I just very quickly want to talk about fear and grief because I think these are two key things that are tripping us up and making the uptake of these concepts of telling the truth and entering emergency mode hard for people. Oh, I'm running out of time. Um, okay, so the climate movement has been afraid of feelings and especially fear. They say, don't be afraid, it's, it doesn't work. But fear is the fundamental evolved instinct through which humans and other animals translate the perception of a risk 
into action. If we didn't experience fear, excuse me, we would not be here because our ancestor would, ancestors would have been eaten by predators, just standing there, not, not feeling afraid, right? Fear, our fear tells us to protect ourselves and we need to listen and go all in to solve this emergency. I'll talk about grief uh, in the panel. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? The revolution needs better AV. If you told me 18 months ago I'd be here at a climate emergency event, I would not have believed you. I'm not an environmentalist and I'm not an activist. I'm a nerd. I like to sit in my study listening to podcasts about the Roman Empire and reading um, academic articles and looking at Excel spreadsheets. What happened? The climate kids happened. The climate strike happened. I watched those brave, clever, fantastic kids one morning, not much older than my own children, and they were asking something extraordinarily urgent of me and my generation. Not the kind of usual urgent things that young people ask you, can I listen to the iPad, you know, go watch the iPad for five hours, can I have a margarita? That kind of stuff, where you have an ethical responsibility to say no. I had an ethical responsibility to say yes, that I was going to do something about climate change. And at that moment, I didn't believe the science of climate change more than I believed it the day before. But climate change and the need to do something about it became the organising principle of my personal and professional life. Um, and it did because of the love for my kids. Um, but when I'm not sitting in front of the television crying about the climate crisis, I'm a researcher. I travel Australia and I listen to all kinds of Australians talk about how they feel about everything from government to climate change to the cost of bananas. Um, you know, my husband jokes that I'm an expert in the views of people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> but that's exactly what we need right now. Just because climate change is at the centre of my world and by acting on it I feel like I'm doing the right thing by my kids doesn't mean that everybody's the same. So I spend a lot of my time with people who will never make their way into this room but that doesn't mean that we can't build a climate movement and build climate messages that appeal to them. Because let's face it, there's only a tiny, tiny group of Australians who are going to be better off if we don't act on climate change. We could almost fit them into a small room, a really horrible room, you know, a really horrible room with people like <laughs> Andrew Bolt in it and stuff like that. I mean, it's really a tiny, tiny group of people who make their living and stake their reputations on a denial of climate change. Every single other person in Australia, whether they believe the science or not, will be better off if we do something about it. And so what I would say to you and this people in this room, and I've, I've got two minutes, I mean, I could sit here and talk about all kinds of things, but I'm going to move to the questions that we're going to have. I think for those people in this room, people like me, who are really concerned or alarmed, who are giving up their Friday to sit in this room and talk about climate change, um, our task is twofold. The first issue is that we need to find a way to look after ourselves. Really thinking about climate change sends you on a kind of roller coaster from 
you know, fear and anger and depression to drinking to thinking about, oh, I'm going to sleep with the next door neighbour because who cares? Um, that kind of stuff. I don't, know. I don't know where that came from. I should have written out... <laughs> you know, really, this is the problem when you just write a speech really quickly on a piece of paper with just notes and you don't think it through. But um, the, so one of the things that despair does is it makes you think kind of crazy thoughts. So the first task is to look after yourself and not sleep with the next door neighbour. No, really. The good thing, you've got to look after yourself, your emotional health through this is going to be really difficult times. So and we talk a lot about resilience and adaptation and this is critical to it. And the second and most important thing is to really understand that we're the people whose views aren't exactly like us, where they're coming from. And to really understand that we can find common ground. Those pathways towards that common ground they might look quite different. Everybody finds a different way um, to think about climate change or to even embrace some of the solutions without even necessarily accepting all the science. So that's our challenge ahead of us. Thank you very much. Richie and I are at a distinct disadvantage because we heard very little. Of what <laughs> I'm what so glad that you didn't said. hear all of my time. <laughs> so if I ask you a question you've already dealt with, just give me the thumbs up. Um, perhaps, Richie, if I could uh, start with you and, and, and ask you to tell, tell us a little bit about your recent polling that you've done and specifically what, uh, what it shows about the readiness of Australians to receive um, climate change framed as an emergency. Sure, and can I just kick off just to say um, how grateful I feel to be here in front of everyone here and, and privileged to talk to you uh, and, and feeling that energy. I mean, this is, I think, what powers a lot of people who work on this day to day. So, it, yeah, I just wanted to start with that, that thank you. Uh, the Australian Institute is an independent think tank based in Canberra. We find a variety of ways to communicate issues we feel are important, and so that can be just um, qualitative, quantitative research, including polling. And the polling that we did uh, right before summer kicked off, so in November, was asking uh, a sample size uh, of the country whether they agreed with the fact that Australia was facing a climate change emergency. And two-thirds of the respondents uh, agreed with that statement, that, that Australia is facing a climate emergency and should respond like it's an emergency. Uh, and on the second question, 63% agreed that the governments of this country should mobilise to tackle climate change much like they did the world wars. Uh, it was a really powerful finding, uh, and it was stronger than similar questions we'd asked mid-year. Uh, and if you just take it on its face value, then we can just you know, pack up and wait till the next federal election, and then things will actually go our way. But uh, unfortunately, that's, that's not what we've seen translate through with, with a lot of these polls. Polling has been a useful tool, and the message has certainly been getting traction. But much like Shane Rattenbury was talking about earlier, it's, it's, it's a process rather than an end, an end goal in terms of achieving that, that solidarity with that message. Within that polling size, 25% very much agreed with the statement. Now, I'm guessing, you know, many of the people here would fit into that 25%. Uh, they're the people who take time off on Friday or are supported on a Friday to come to this kind of a meeting. 
Uh, and so in using this polling, I guess my question to the 25% here is, how successful do you feel you've been in talking about what you feel is the climate emergency to those in your family who might not share those views or those in your broader community? Uh, and whether you felt like you've been banging your head against the wall. Now, not you specifically, but maybe the person next to you. Uh, it, it, it's a tough one. And so what we've done at the Institute is also look at a variety of different messages that we, can, that we can translate, that we can use research, that we can find different communities to talk to. And I'm happy to share some of those examples later. Um, yes, uh, Richie, you were talking about um, a large number, the fact that a large number of people seem to be um, willing to accept that, that we are in an emergency situation. But what level of action uh, would they be supporting? I guess it, it depends on where those people fall. So those who are very, very much agree with the climate emergency start you know, using their time day and night. They, they channel their work hours towards it. Um, they take personal action, but then they also get politically active. So they write to their politicians or they join groups that protest in front of their offices or they find different ways to unpack what, what's going on politically uh, and translating that for their community so that they can better understand the fact that, say, the federal government is not doing enough on climate change, that emissions are trending upwards, that really uh, a 26% target uh, is a weak target and we're not on track to even hit that weak target. So they find a variety of ways to exercise that. I think the real question is how do you get those who are in the middle who are concerned or are starting to feel impacted into the very active campaign. And I think that's going to spike over the summer. Uh, other polling that we did in January shows that 66% of people think that the bushfires are an example of climate inaction. And I think this was really useful because if we think back to the federal election, where I think uh, the, where the conversation was at was around the cost of action. Sure, Labour wants to do this, but what's, what's the cost? What's it going to cost us? What is the cost of taking climate action? And I think now we can have a serious conversation around what is the cost of inaction because of that felt experience that will drive it. There still seems to be a huge divide, though, in the community between those who are taking action in their own lives, who are very informed and aware and frightened. Uh, and those that still think that, well, perhaps climate action is, uh, it's there, it's happening, but uh, not convinced that it's, you know, brought about by anything that human beings do. Rebecca, I'm, uh, I'm interested in your comments about how we are going to uh, bring those people, probably the majority still, closer well, perhaps not at that extreme, but certainly those that are complacent, bring those further towards um, an area where we're going to have the strength in the community of, of um, people demanding action from politicians. Yes, it's a tricky one. And I suppose um, I'm, I tend to like to think about, I think that the normal ways in which we've understood um, the majority of people being concerned about climate change or wanting action have shown pretty much at the last election to be not precise enough tools for us to be able to measure anything really. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you kind of take Australia at the moment, you probably have about 20, 25% perhaps less who are, who are genuinely anxious about climate change and think about it when they vote, think about it when they buy a car, think about it when they do everything. 
there's a much larger group that are generally concerned. In fact, in Australia, you would only say there's a reasonably small group of people who are active climate change deniers. The larger challenge we have is that there's a good chunk of people who are concerned, a good chunk of people who are, oh, I think it's a problem, but I'm not sure how we sh what we should do. I think it might be a problem a bit for my grandchildren rather than me. And a group of people that are completely and utterly disengaged. And when we say that the, um, the people like us in the room are scared, pretty much everyone's scared. They're just scared about different things. <laughs> so fear is something that runs through the community more broadly. So it's, it's not just that we're terrified and everybody else is saying how good's Australia, because they're not just saying that, they're, they're saying a whole range of things. So one of the things that um, I've been thinking about is trying to develop much more sophisticated research tools and more sophisticated communication tools, because I'm not that fixed on everybody finding the same pathway to action. We know that we need to transition away from fossil fuels to a low carbon economy I'm quite happy if somebody doesn't accept the science but accepts the solution. And I think we've got more and more opportunities to find new ways to make arguments to people, which is, look, even if you're not convinced that human beings are causing this, this thing has to happen. There's lots of reasons why it needs to happen. There's lots of people who are not hardcore cronies and socialists who say it needs to happen, and you're going to benefit. So I don't want to have an argument with you about CO2 levels and Paris agreements and science. Let's have an argument about the mutually beneficial um, uh, endpoint of action. And I think um, our, our, in, our need to force people through a particular kind of script on climate change has potentially been a bit of a problem. Well, it's a very... I'm not pretending for a moment that this is an easy thing to solve. It's really hard, which is why I'm... one of the many reasons why I'm interested in it. You talked about um, one of the emotional barriers uh, being our reaction to fear. Some of us will acknowledge that and others uh, um, would like to try and avoid having to deal with it. Look, fear, and I, I think you should answer, but, you know, as you know, fear can be... There's no... There's always positive and negatives about any fearful... Reaction. I mean, it was fear for my kids' future that made me become involved in the climate movement, right? So fear and a bit of guilt um, transformed me into, from a kind of a generally concerned into a genuinely alarmed. For other people, fear shut, it makes them shut down. But you can talk to them about, very generally about, um, and I've seen in many focus groups, anxiety that Australia is being left behind, that the extraordinary social and economic opportunities available from a low-carbon economy and new energy sources means that we're all going to suffer, whether you believe in climate change or not. So, I mean, you can talk about these kinds of so-called negative emotions like fear and anxiety and worry, and you can attach them to... So you can make them constructive, um, but it, just yelling at people, stock up on the canned goods, we're all going to die... Generally, <laughs> yep. while a fun party trick at my house may not kind of, you know, play out in the general community. Yep. Margaret, I think you were talking about fear before and the um, importance of fear in biology. Uh, indeed, animals and humans wouldn't survive without it. But could you talk to us a little bit about how to constructively deal with it um, so that people aren't forced into... Um, 
burying their head in the sand and, and inaction. Absolutely. <clears throat> the point of fear, oh, thank you, oh, I'm good, thank you. The, the point of fear is to act. That, that is its evolved purpose. And if we, just to look at a different uh, analogy, that analogous situation that I think can be helpful, um, if your friend or sister told you that uh, she was dating someone, and he, but she was scared of him, he, he made her feel afraid, you would never say, oh, no, 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 don't worry, fear doesn't work, you know, fear's bad. It's, that's information, right? And you, it is critical to, you know, you don't just um, panic, right? Fear is different from panic. You need to rationally process what you're feeling and use your values and morality and feelings and rationality to move into action. Action uh, and building a movement that transforms society is the only answer. It, it, is, it is the only way we will achieve the kind of political and economic transformation that we need is through building power for this new paradigm. And so fear is fuel for that. And if we shut it down, what, what is the fuel? I, I mean, and, and sure, there's some, there's, there's some things, but uh, it's, it's incredibly powerful and we're like kneecapping ourselves if we say, oh, no, no, not, no fear. Um, but I, I do want to talk also about grief because I, I think it's really critically important and I think it's almost entirely left out of the... Um, you know, policy, activism, and so forth discussion. Um, and I think it speaks to some of what uh, you both were talking about. How, how is it that people, on one hand, recognize the emergency, and yet they don't necessarily vote on it, or they're even just, why, how are people just living their lives as normal, given that this uh, crisis is upon us? And so, so yeah, un understanding the emotional barriers is uh, so important. And when you face the truth of the climate emergency, how, how terribly bad this problem is, I, I mean, so bad, it's, it's painful. It's, it's terribly painful. We, we grieve the billion animals that died in the bushfires. We grieve the millions of people who have already been killed by the climate emergency, generally the world's poorest people. And our grief is an expression of love. We grieve these people and other life because they, they matter and their loss matters. And, by, and when we allow ourselves to feel that, we f also feel our connection to each other and to the greater web of life. And the, there's another side of grief also, which is when we truly face the reality, we have to grieve the future that we thought we had and even the 
the person that, that we thought we were. Uh, most, most people, many people in my generation grew up being told, uh, you know, a progress, the, f the future is bright and, you know, you can, you, you can be whoever you want to be. And um, it's not, it, it wasn't true. It's, um, and the plans and goals and trajectory that uh, we thought we were on, it's not gonna happen. And that is, again, it's so painful. It's so painful that it is blocking many, many people from actually integrating climate truth into their reality. And, but through the process of grieving, of really letting ourselves feel the pain of these losses, it opens up the possibility for something new, a new story of self, a new identity, a new plan for the future, and a, and a new, the new world that we can build together. Once we realize that this one, this world, is, it's done. It's, it's, it's in its last, last gasps, but we can build the new one. It's particularly painful for... It's particularly painful for wealthy white people to realise that there's no endless trajectory of growth and progress, um, uh, which is a lot of... Well, not everybody here, but a lot of people here. And I've, I've been thinking a bit about that because... Um, because... It, it, while it's, it, it shows the level of, of privilege we have, which is the idea that we were going to have endless growth and our children were going to do better than we are, even though we're doing really well, um, that realisation at the board level and the other level, which needs to happen, um, is going to be part of the reasons why we might make a transition more quickly than not. And one of the things that's been really interesting looking at the psychological studies around the country, particularly in terms of how people respond to imagery around climate change, is that um, a lot of the research shows that predominantly a lot of the imagery around climate change is around, you know, polar ice caps melting or landscapes without people or, interestingly, um, third world countries or countries, developing countries where climate change has hit like Bangladesh, but everyone's smiling and going about their everyday day. What has happened with the bushfires, and I'm yet to be convinced that this is a dramatic tripping, tripping, a tipping point that's going to change everything, but what it has done, it has had furnished our community with thousands of images, of relatable images, um, of people who we can, who are like us, um, who we can relate to, who we know, and places we've taken our kids and gone for holidays. And so it's become personal, whereas so much of climate change imagery and is about it's happening somewhere else. So when, yeah, when white, when white um, wealthy, powerful people start to feel that the future is not theirs, then sometimes something changes. Yes, indeed. Um, perhaps while we're talking about uh, wealthy white people, we should also um, perhaps talk about uh, wealthy white people's media. Because I'd like to, um, to, to know what, what you think uh, of the way the media deals 
with the whole issue. Um, in, I don't know if there are any uh, students of journalism here, but one of the uh, principles is always, has always been to be objective. And I think um, people confuse that with being neutral. So there's this emphasis on neutrality, but none of the enduring pieces of journalism, none of them, uh, uh, in none of them has the journalist been neutral. They've been objective, but when confronted with the truth, they're then committed to it. Um, and I, I just wondered whether you, you think that the media is doing a good job in communicating the facts and communicating the urgency. I still get people say to me, oh yes, bushfires, aren't they terrible? But you know, it's people that light those fires. So I can, I can really only speak to the US media, um, and it's uh, absolutely terrible. Uh, in terms of US reporting on the, on the bushfires, out of approximately 100, I forget the exact number, two mentioned climate at all, TV, TV news segments. I, I mean, honestly, it's a betrayal of public trust and those companies deserve to be just shut down. They, it's, um, there's so many factors that go into why the media is failing us so badly. Um, obviously, corporate control and uh, I think your worst export, uh, Rupert Murdoch. So, sorry about that. Yeah, guys. Well, I did give you Hugh Jackman, so you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a incredibly deep and embedded problem. Um, however, it's, um, there are some bright spots. Um, there's a, a friend of mine, um, Genevieve Gunther started a project called End Climate Silence that's really just her, I mean, it, it, it started, it's become a bit more than this, but it's really just her on Twitter yelling at journalists and editors and news reporters for, she, this is her project End Climate Silence is where I got that information that only two television segments talked about the Australian fires at all. So, so tracking, calling them out, calling them out publicly and, and educating them when that is part of the problem. And it, and it often is, right? Uh, just because someone's a reporter or works in a news organization doesn't mean they know. Um, I mean, it, they should, <laughs> but they, they might not. So it's, um, it is possible to change everything and to, to change the media. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't, I don't, I don't want to start slamming the media because we'd be here all day. But um, I can see the impact that the way that the media frames and reports on climate in Australia manifest in my research. And there's three main manifestations. The first is, is it paints the issue of climate change as one of extraordinary division and shouting. So that if you're not confident enough to shout and yell about climate, you feel like that's not a place that you can enter. And so it increases the fact that most people don't talk about climate in their day-to-day -day life. So they imagine the discussion about climate change should be the discussion that it is in our parliaments and in, in the media, which is hugely divided. But if you actually look at the electorate, 
the kinds of people who are yelling about it all the time, uh, they don't exist in the community. The community is a spectrum of concern to belief around it, you know, so, that, so, it, so we have the media amplifying division and politicisation around climate. Um, the other, th and then the consequence of that is, is it makes people think this is an intractable problem that our political system cannot solve. But the one thing that the media does and one of the effective things that the Conservatives does, have done has made particularly the ABC so anxious about being accused of bias that they give these basically people who, if they were talking about anything else but climate, if they were talking about cancer or brain surgery or anything else, would not be given a platform on Q&A. It gives them a platform on those forums to come and talk about things that are manifestly not true and embarrassingly puts them on a platform with people with PhDs who know what they're talking about. And this makes people think, oh, there's still debate. And a debate between Malcolm Roberts and Tim Flannery is not a debate. <laughs> it's not. It's just not a debate. Because a debate assumes the, ra the, the exchange of, of information. It's not that. It's politics comes up against information and, and politics wins. So there's a lot that's really problematic about the way that the media frame climate conversations. Um, and there's a lot we can do. But that being said, I'm always really, as much as Twitter's a really difficult forum to watch about climate, um, it is a forum that a lot of people get involved in. So you do have really great information on social media circulating, funny put-downs of people who talk about climate. And, you know, worst things worse, you just block people. So it is a, it's a mixed... And, and, of course, we've got the Murdoch media here who, even if they manage just to, to move... Somebody's hissing. Poor, yeah. their, their circulation is going down, not quickly enough. <laughs> I would like their circulation to go down with our emissions. That would be good to somebody who could track that. But anyway. Just uh, when there's a heat wave coming up, Oftentimes you see when uh, a lot of the mainstream papers or news sites project a heat wave's coming, they have a picture of someone kicking it at the beach. Uh, whereas heat waves uh, are actually the silent killer. They kill more people as an extreme weather event than every other extreme weather event put together in this country. But the person's there kicking it on the beach. So part of it is also pushing you know, a lot of these media agencies to actually reflect climate change, even in the images they use. I think Rebecca's point is great because you'll have so much lived experience of climate impacts now that there's a lot more of a richer tapestry to draw on to reflect it better. But I think part of it is even just the imaging. And then it's also how can you use social media better, I think. And this is, this is the great thing about the, you know, the youth climate strikes. Is it's the use of social media to actually get a lot of these messages pushed into the mainstream. And I think a good example coming out of Q&A, if you can take a good example out of Q&A, uh, was the fact that a very complicated issue, which is how Australia will carry over carbon credits that are in surplus from the Kyoto Protocol into the Paris Agreement. Now, that's been an issue we've been trying to explain for two years. And it's finally gotten to the point where you have the host of The Bachelor capture that in an analogy on Q&A by talking about how he's trying to get away with washing less dishes in his second marriage because he washed a lot in his first. 
and that's and that's how Kyoto credits work. It was great. Like I was really jealous. Like it was the perfect analogy. But if you can get those kind of things, and that comes from social media, it doesn't necessarily come from mainstream. But then you can eventually push it in. So there there are other ways, and I think it's about trying all of them to get there. And um, I'm just wondering also what your research is telling you about uh, powerlessness, how how powerless people might feel because uh, perhaps we aren't providing enough positive uh, information about positive solutions. So that there's a, a, a lot of alarm, there's a lot of fear, but they don't know what the hell they could do other than, I guess, write to their um, members of parliament. Yeah, I mean, I see it in groups sometimes is that you do worry for people who are pushing the reality about climate change to the periphery or in denial, that when they are finally confronted, they're going to go straight to despair and start stocking up on the canned goods. So they miss out all this, potentially those other stages of, I need to do something about it. Um, I mean, really, the, there were so many messages from the last um, federal election, but one of the biggest ones for me was this sense of... of the declining trust in government, not only just to do what it says it's going to do in a campaign, but to actually bring about the kinds of important structural and social reforms that we all say we kind of want. Um, and it reminds me very much of a, you would know this, the kind of Daniel Kahneman notion of prospect theory, which is basically around loss and gain, is that we feel losses far more acutely than we feel gains. And so when a politician says we're going to tax you here to give you all these other services later. They believe them when they say we're going to tax you. They don't believe you when they say um, we're going to do these things for you, these positive things that you say that you want. So, I mean, when we... In, in things like segmentation around looking at how people... But climate change, we always ask questions about political efficacy and whether they think their vote matters and how they feel about government and institutions. That's really central to how they feel about climate change. It can often be a determining factor. And we have this you know, group of people who are just disengaged. And their disengagement is not because they're stupid and don't understand the science or they don't care about their community or they don't care about their kids. They've lost faith that government will do what it says it's going to do and that it will do the kinds of things that need to be done for the community and not for the people who fund their um, political campaigns. Because we don't know who funds their political campaigns until six months after the goddamn campaigns. So we've got to do something about that. So we have to do something more broadly about political engagement and trust in the system. It's going to take a long time to build that, but it's absolutely central to these climate messages. So um, I just want to add to that. I, I'm in total agreement, um, but I think... So you, you frame the question as um, something like, what, what, do, what are powerless people supposed to do or something? But there are no powerless people. There, there are many, many, many people who feel powerless, who have been told that they are powerless, who have been, uh, you know, given a terribly corrupt political system that makes it hard to see where exactly their power lies. But there, there is a, a huge lack of understanding in the United States, and I, I believe here as well, but about how social change really happens and 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 as such how one person can plug in and make a difference how a social movement 
uh, builds, like the the image that I think most people have about social change is something like, um, well, there's spontaneously a huge protest, and then things change. But but in in fact, you know, there's many, many people who are laying groundwork for that in infrastructure and having meetings and fundraising and networking and, you know, writing papers. And there's so much that goes into social movements. And as such, there's so much that needs to be done. There's so much that everybody here can do to help make this transformation possible. And, yeah, I, I think that... Um, that's partially, you know, the, yeah, the uh, neoliberal idea, ideology, right? There is no alternative. There's, there's no other possible economic system. There's no other possible political system. It's, it's all, it, it, the, the point is, is to make people feel powerless. And I think an absolutely critical part of this is um, rejecting that and, and finding our power. I mean, this is a... It's, it's a really good point, and I think sometimes when we think about powerlessness and when people think, I want to do something, but I feel powerless, one of the things I say is, well, what do you already do? Like, what do you do? What clubs are you organ... Like, do you, what's your job? And the, the really horrible thing about climate change is it affects everything, but the one thing we've got is it affects everything. So if, anything that anybody does, their job, the community they live in, the organisations they're part of, can be connected in some way to climate change. So I often don't want to say to people, we've got to go to a whole lot of new meetings and join a whole lot of new societies and buy a lot of whole new clothes to fit in with your new group who are concerned about climate change. You can take the life you live now, put a climate change on it, and there's your power. You're already powerful as a teacher or a pharmacist or whatever else. And then how do you make that really genuine connection to the life that you live and what needs to happen with climate change and it can be done without having to go to any more meetings on a Monday night, which we all like to do, but some of us have other things to do than go to meetings. Did you want to add to that, Richard? Uh, I thought Michael Mann had this great line earlier today, which is, we need urgency, we have agency. I thought it was just a really nice way of encapsulating that, and that almost any message on climate change needs to end with, what can you do? I think that was one of the major criticisms of the inconvenient truth, is that he... that, our, that Vice President Al Gore, uh, you know, told an amazing story, both heartfelt and scientific, but then ended with changing light bulbs. Uh, and they just didn't marry up. So it's how do you communicate what action people could take that's on par with what they actually feel, be it the, ma the, ma the massive task or the smaller task. Uh, perhaps we should also consider communication and politicians, how our politicians communicate. Um, at the moment, the leader in Australia uh, really wants us to feel comfortable and that basically things are in God's hands, uh, I think. Um, whereas in the US, you now have someone potentially, uh, the likes of Bernie Sanders, uh, um, being the uh, leader, the contender of the, for the Democratic Party, uh, and he has a very different approach, very direct, very honest, very informed. Uh, how successful do you think uh, this is going to be? Because last time he was sabotaged, 
what what's going to happen this time? Because here you have someone who has the courage to stand up and tell the truth and uh, to say these are the difficult things that we have to tackle. Yeah, um, so I, <laughs> I wish I could tell you what will happen, um, but I, 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 and I think it's going to be a Bernie Sanders presidency, um, but I'm not, I can't be sure. Um, but it really is a clash of everything we've been talking about. Um, it is a clash of uh, the status quo, uh, you know, the, the world that we've been living in, neoliberalism, uh, corruption, uh, bullshit, uh, versus, yes, someone who is telling the truth, someone whose climate plan includes uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez introduced uh, a climate emergency declaration into Congress, and uh, Bernie Sanders' climate plan calls for a $16 trillion World War II scale climate mobilization. Um, so he's, it, it's, uh, and the Green New Deal, this is, it, this is about building a new world. And the way that he is winning is through empowered people, right? People who are, who previously did not view themselves as political actors who decided actually they can go knock on their neighbor's doors and they can uh, talk to their friends about Bernie and then they, they can go to town meetings. And the, the organizing apparatus that he has uh, built in the United States is um, unlike anything I have ever seen. It puts Barack Obama's uh, you know, then revolutionary organizing apparatus absolutely to shame. And if he wins, and again, I think he will, but that will a hundred percent be the reason why. You know, even his slogan, right? Not me, us. That, that is real. Bernie Sanders alone would have no chance, but because he has actually a citizen's movement and an empowered people's movement, he's winning. Mayor, I just wanted to pick up on your point about our Prime Minister um, thinking that it's all in God's hands. Um, I, I, I just want to make clear to the audience, and probably a lot of you know, is that every single religious denomination that exists, including a group of evangelicals, have made very strong statements on climate change. So we shouldn't imagine that religious commitment or faith and action on climate change or a kind of denialist position is actually a common one. And again, if we're going to, as a as people concerned about climate change, we do need to make sure that our language is as inclusive as possible. And it's actually faith communities in America and particularly here who would be extraordinarily powerful and are extraordinarily powerful um, advocates on climate. Um, they talk about being stewards of the earth and they're very, very, I mean, I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic. They know how to think in a thousand year time periods. They're very, very good at long-term planning. You don't build um, the buildings that they build and you don't think about long-term planning. Um, so I just want, I, 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 I sometimes see some of the climate protests 
and signs making fun of the Prime Minister not holding lumps of coal, which is ludicrous, but his religious beliefs, and I would caution against that in terms of messaging. We want... We all have, except for a tiny group of that... Think about that room of Clive Palmer having a drink with a couple of... <laughs> Alan Jones. That's the group of people who have an investment in climate, no climate action, and all the rest of us will benefit, including faith community. I, I actually think that small group of people will also eventually, and I mean, not, not that far in the future, also uh, starve. <laughs> they've, got, they, they've got biospheres and like private islands. I don't think they will. <laughs> okay, I think it's time to take um, a couple of questions from the audience. And our first one here is, how can we harness fear without people shutting down? action and and um empathy right uh if if someone is uh you know freaking out really um uh really having trouble with this you know say to them yeah i i i know i i understand it's it's horrible and and at least we can be together in this um i think one of one of the the single most common emotional experience that people living in climate truth uh, report is alienation, right? I feel so alone. I feel so different. Why don't other people understand? No one in my family gets it, whatever, this, this kind of thing. And so just, uh, just being together with it. You're, you're not alone. You're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. This is a terrifying situation, and let's do everything that we can. Would either of you like to add to that? Oh, no, I just think you never shout, you don't shout fire and then say, and there's no exit in the, and just <laughs> sit there and, you know, you fire and point to the exit. It's very simple. Yeah, sorry, just um, one thing we say at the climate mobilization is uh, maximum fear, maximum hope, that, that these things actually are not at all mutually exclusive. They, they go together, and I think they are actually the best description uh, of reality that, that we face now. Um, so, yeah. yeah, no, no. Um, another question is, how do we leverage the situation we're in at the moment? So the, because the bushfire effect may fade uh, fairly soon, how can we use this as a communications opportunity and tipping point? Look, my, my professional life is measuring the bushfire effect and I can't say what it is right now. So we don't know what it is. You can't measure the effect on different communities of something like the bushfire now. So I might be confident about saying what that might be in six months' time, maybe, if I've got the data. The other thing that is... I, I, I think that things like extreme weather events and other things can... Um, accelerate social change, but I think we need to stop thinking about tipping points, um, particularly tipping points that we don't create. I think that things like the fires are an opportunity for people who see the connection between that and climate change to do things, lots of different kinds of things. But I do feel that there are some people, certainly I saw in my own social circle, which is, oh, the fires must mean that everybody will now be on board, the penny will drop, and I think that that can be I think that's... I, I, I'm just... I wish that was the case, but 
but I've no evidence at the moment in the Australian community, no reliable data to say that that's happened. So we can't, we're not going to be gifted a tipping point to move people in the time that we have. Um, we need to create the momentum ourselves regardless of what Mother Nature decides to do. I'm, I'm just wondering, given, given the connection between uh, politics or politicians and the corporate world, how important is it to make sure that it's these calls are coming from the corporate world. They're starting to, coming from the Reserve Bank and coming from various uh, parts of the corporate world. Uh, but how important uh, is it for us to, uh, um, uh, in our role as shareholders, those of us that are shareholders, in being vocal? It's very important. I think too many times corporates have been able to change with the wind. Like just on Q&A, the Business Council of Australia head Jennifer Westacott was on and was suddenly singing the praises of net zero emissions by 2050, but most recently they called a target that was in line with net zero emissions, which is the one that we had for 2030, the 45%, they said that was economy wrecking. Like, and, you know, and this has flipped and flopped. They supported the emissions training scheme and then they celebrated the fact that it was scrapped. Uh, so many times businesses get away with greenwashing and I think it's because they can and part of our activism, part of actually doing everything we can is to holding them to account and it's not just when we purchase or not purchase their goods, it's actually, you know, it's actually seeing how our super funds actually vote, uh, it's seeing how our banks invest in new coal-fired power stations or new gas-fired plants, it's actually going to these shareholder meetings if we do have shares in them and holding them to account. I think there's been a lot of traction there and asking the Commonwealth Bank why it's a member of, say, the Minerals Council. I don't know if it is, but if it is, why is it? And why are these groups actually having that kind of influence and why are we part of that? I'm just wondering, in the last um, few minutes that are left to us, if I can go to each of you and ask you how you would propose uh, to us to uh, take the momentum that's in this room and to be able to communicate it to a broader Australia, to our families, friends, neighbours, uh, because it's, it's not just going to work through the media, it's also the power of human connection and word of mouth uh, can't be overplayed here. Um, so I'd like, I'd like to canvas your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, um, I think that's the right question. Um, I think that uh, this summit will have an impact because of the people here will take the message with them. And I think the, the way to do that, so, so first of all, talk to everyone. Talk to your friends and family and neighbors and cab driver and person who you buy coffee from at, because just, just break the silence. Talking about it is, is a hugely important act. And it also takes courage because it can be awkward, right? And it's maybe they're not going to like you and maybe they're going to think you're crazy and whatever, but it's worth it. And the way to talk about it, I 
highly suggest to make it personal and emotional. You do not have to be a scientist to talk about this. This is your issue and your world too. And so say, I, I'm so scared. I, this is, you know, what, what, do you, what do you see when you look at the future? Because my God, I, I'm, you know, share, share what's in your, in your heart uh, rather than don't, don't be worried about, um, you know, getting a statistic wrong. It's, it, you don't, it, yeah, share, share what's in your heart. I like a double down on all of that. And just to, just to add one thing, one of the things when we do our research, we ask people if they talk about climate change in their day-to-day -day life, and most people don't. We ask people why they don't. They go, well, they don't want to upset anybody, or it's, it's kind of like we can now talk about sex and politics, but we can't talk about climate change. Or sex and religion, that's it. Um, politics, you can't talk about climate change. Um, but particularly women say, I'm more likely than men to say, I'm worried that I'm not across all the science. And I almost want to say to them, well, that doesn't bother most people who write for the Australian or pretty much the backbench of the Liberal Party. So you probably, if you've done Year 10 science, you're probably all over it. That's right. You, know, you just think, that, that's right. Yeah, don't worry that you don't know about statistics. Start with what matters to you and, and don't start with the science. Start with what matters with you that... that you basically believe we've kind of got to believe these guys and these women who spend their whole life studying this and really feel that together we can get this done. Yeah, Jim Molin should be an inspiration for anyone, I think. You know, if, if, if he can go on TV and say, I don't, I don't rely on the evidence, that, that basically empowers anyone to talk about what they feel is important. Uh, I think what people should take away from here is this is your fuel. You know, these are your people. Like, this is where you can get your energy to actually go out there and have those really hard conversations. I, I know that's definitely what I'm getting from this. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, have faith in politics. Uh, it's basically, ha have faith in politics, because politics is for you. It, you know, it, it's your representation. Uh, and every time the sports rorts or forgeries or any other kind of you know, jiggery-pokery happens, and people just brush it off. That's one more, you know, one more sort of chip on, on people's integrity um, when it comes to politics. And it makes people turn off. And it gives them a greater sway and room to claim that they're listening to the quiet Australians when really they're ignoring everyone. So you have to invest in and have faith in and talk up politics and how important it is that people are engaged rather than the opposite. And I think there's a real risk, and this is not just because I'm based in Canberra, I think there's, I think there's a real risk that, that people will switch off to politics, especially under this current administration. And so backing politics in is actually backing in the potential to make huge change on climate. Thank you. Well, it's good to end on a positive note. Um, our time has run out. I'd like to thank Margaret, Rebecca and Richie and uh, all of you, of course, because that brings us to uh, the one and a half hour dinner break now. 
And following the afternoon break, the summit's feature evening event presents an expert panel that will take the hot seat for a not-so-hypothetical plunge into exploring how Australia could respond across the political, economic and social spectrum at emergency speed, featuring Ross Garner, Lydia Thorpe, Carmen Lawrence, Karen Phillips, Greg Mullins, Ian Dunlop, Paul Gilding, and hosted by broadcaster and journalist Ali Moore here at the main stage. Um, that's all from me, though, today, Mary Kostakidis. Um, all the very best for the remainder of the summit. And please thank our wonderful panellists again. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 